We have an anchor that keeps the soul steady. The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. And in Matthew chapter 27, we have a picture of Jesus as He goes to the cross for the sins of the human family. You remember John the Baptizer, when he saw Jesus on one occasion, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. Matthew chapter 27 depicts for us the suffering servant, the one of whom Isaiah wrote many, many years earlier, the one that would be rejected and despised by men, as Isaiah said in chapter 53. He would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. Isaiah said the chastisement of our peace would be upon Him, and with His stripes we would be healed. Tonight as we look at Matthew 27, I want to begin by first of all calling attention to the courtroom. The courtroom scene before the cross. When you look at the varying biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the writers provide insight into the trial scene. In Matthew chapter 27, we have an account of the examination of Jesus. Now, Jesus stood before the high priest, Anna Caiaphas. He was taken to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, Pilate sent him to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate again. So in Matthew chapter 27, we have an account of Jesus as he stands before Pontius Pilate. Let me just pick up tonight in verse 11. Matthew said, as Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Verse 12, while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Pilate then said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Matthew tells us that at the feast the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. They had a fellow by the name of Barabbas, identified by Matthew as a notorious prisoner. They gathered together, and Pilate then asked them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now look at verse 18. For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him. In verse 19, Pilate's own wife said, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. The chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. In verse 21, Pilate then said, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? As incredulous as it may have been, they asked for Barabbas. Pilate then asked this question, 
What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Now I want you to think about something for a minute. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Pontius Pilate asked that question to a mob of people. That question, in a sense, is personal, isn't it? Every single one of us, we must grapple with this question. What will we do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? It is a personal question. It is a powerful question. And it is a profound question. Can you think of a question that would carry more weight than this one? Pilate asked the question of the ages. What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And Matthew said they all cried out, let him be crucified. In verse 23, Pilate sensed that Jesus was innocent. As a matter of fact, one of the accounts says, after he had examined him, his conclusion was, I find no fault in this man. As a matter of fact, John, in chapter 18 and 19, John says that three times Pontius Pilate conceded, I find no fault in this man. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent of the trumped-up charges that had been leveled against him. And so in verse 24, the Bible says, When Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather that an uproar was rising, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. It's amazing to me that Pontius Pilate had the insight to recognize that Jesus was an innocent man. He identified him as a just man and then tried to wash his hands of the whole affair. And so you think about the fact that he was examined by Pilate and then this exclamation that he found no fault in him. But then if you would note what Matthew has to say about their treatment of Jesus. Bear in mind that we're talking about the divine Son of God, the incarnate Christ, the one of whom John said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the very creator of the universe standing in the presence of His creation and their ill treatment of Him. You know, there are times in life when we say and do things and we're ashamed, and rightly so. I can only wonder what some of the people who took part in the ill treatment of Jesus must have felt after this whole sordid affair was over. And then you jettison forward to Pentecost Day. A multitude of people in the city of Jerusalem and they hear the gospel for the first time. Wonder how many of those same people that had been present at the crucifixion of Christ heard the gospel in all of its fullness for the very first time. Listen, if you would, to what Matthew has to say as he chronicles their treatment of the Lord. Verse 26, the Bible says, First and foremost, they scourged Jesus. John said in chapter 19, verse 1, that Pilate therefore took Jesus 
and scourged him. The scourge itself was enough to kill a man. They would strip a man, and then they would take a whip. The whip would have attached to it fragments of bone or stone or some other type of instrument attached to it. And they would literally flay a man. Imagine if you can, here is the very Son of God, the indignity of the scourge. It's no wonder that He was unable to carry the cross as He made His way to Golgotha. They scourged Him and then they delivered Him to be crucified. Verse 28, the Bible says, they stripped Him and put a scarlet robe on Him. Verse 29 says, they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on His head. They sneered at Him. They took a reed, put it in His right hand. They bowed the knee before Him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. They did this in jest, in contempt of the very Son of God. And then verse 30, Matthew said, Then they spat on Him and took the reed and struck Him on the head. So here Matthew tells us that the Lord Jesus, He was scourged. They sneered at Him. They spat upon Him. They slapped Him. Note, if you would, the continuation as Matthew chronicles. Verse 32, the Bible says, as they came out, they found a man of serene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear His cross. And so as Jesus made His way, to Golgotha. According to Matthew, he fell beneath the weight of the cross. Again, when you look at what the record has to say about the ill treatment of the Son of God, he's wearied from the trial. He's been mocked and ridiculed and beaten, scourged, the loss of blood. The Lord Jesus is hurting. And so then, as we make our way outside the walls of Jerusalem, we come to the cruelty of the cross. I mentioned a moment ago the indignity of the ill treatment that they heaped upon the Son of God. Well, the cross itself, the cross and the indignity of being put to death on a wooden cross. Verse 33, the Bible says, when they came to a place called Golgotha. The word Golgotha means the place of a skull. Historians state that there was a knoll just outside the walls of Jerusalem that resembled a bare skull. Now Luke said in chapter 23 of his account, when they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Him. And the malefactors, or the thieves, one on the right hand, and the other on the left. And so Jesus has come to the place called Golgotha. Matthew said they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted, he would not drink. Then they crucified him. Let me just pause here. Historians indicate that the Romans perfected crucifixion. The intent of the Romans was to make a man suffer as much as was humanly possible in death. 
They delighted in people being put to death in this manner. Now we talk about the place of the cross, but what about the pain associated with the cross? Again, Jesus has been beaten, mocked, and ridiculed, and now they nail Him to a wooden cross. The spikes, as they were driven into His hands and feet, can you imagine the searing, awful pain the nerve endings as they recoiled, as those spikes were driven into His flesh. I can't begin to imagine the pain that Jesus experienced on Golgotha. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, you remember, Peter said, speaking of Christ, that He left us an example that we should follow in His steps who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, threatened not. But note if you would that word, when he suffered. In chapter 3, verse 18, Peter said, Christ also, listen to him, once suffered for sins. No doubt there's a lot in the inherent meaning of that word suffered. Jesus suffered immensely on the cross. Physically, yes. Mentally, no doubt. And then the fact that He was the sin-bearer of the human family. Jesus and the indignity of the cross. Had you been there, what would your reaction have been? What would have been racing through your mind? Would you have taken part? Would you have been a part of that howling mob that wanted to crucify Him? Or would you have wept? I mentioned the indignity of the cross, but also think about the insults at the cross. Matthew says in verse 36, sitting down, they kept watch over him. They put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is the king of the Jews. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Now, I said a moment ago, there were insults hurled at the Son of God. Really, two very specific things that come to mind. Number one, they questioned the sonship of Jesus. Listen to what Matthew said. In verse 40, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. You remember as Jesus began His earthly ministry, as recorded by John in chapter 2? Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it up. They thought he was talking about the physical temple. Jesus, however, was talking about his body, the the temple or tabernacle of his body. And so they said, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Drop down, look at verse 43. In verse 43, he trusted in God, let him deliver him. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Question, was he the Son of God? What an insult. They questioned the very sonship of Jesus. And yet for three, three and a half years, over and over again, the point had been made that Jesus was whom? The Son of God. You remember in Matthew 16, Jesus is in northern Palestine, that region, Caesarea Philippi. On that occasion, he asked the disciples, Whom do men say that I am? 
They said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked this question, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John chapter 6, when Jesus identified himself as the bread of life, that living bread that came down from heaven. You remember many of the Jews went back and, as John said, walk no more with him. Jesus then asked this question, will you also go away? And what did they say? What did the apostles say? Specifically, he asked the twelve, didn't he? Peter spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. And we have come to believe and to know, listen to him, that you are the Son of God. Did the people, as they stood before the cross, have they had ample opportunity to come to the conclusion that Jesus was the Son of God? I think they did. How so? Peter just said a moment ago, Lord, you have the words of life eternal. Was his message not incomparable? Didn't John say in chapter 7, verse 46, no man ever spoke like this man? Didn't Matthew say in Matthew chapter 7, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. The message that they heard should have driven the point home that this was the very Son of God. And then the miracles that he performed. Now John records seven miracles. The various miracles that John records in his gospel narrative. Those miracles attest to the deity of Christ, do they not? Didn't John say many of the signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book? But these are written, why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. In John chapter 5, Jesus said in His own defense, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Over and over again, Jesus performed the miraculous. In chapter 2, John said He turned water into wine. You think about in John 11, He raised Lazarus from the dead. How much more proof do you need? Look, this is the Son of God. They questioned the sonship of Jesus and they questioned the sovereignty of Jesus. Back up and note again. In verse 40, they said, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Here's my question. Could Jesus have come down from the cross? Yes, He could have. You really think, do you really believe in your heart of hearts that those nails kept him on the cross? Not a chance. You remember prior to the crucifixion to my father, and he will provide me with 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion consisted of about five to 6,000 troops. And Jesus is saying, look, I can, have, I can have at my disposal 12 legions of angels. 60,000 angels at my beckoning defense, if I so please. Jesus said, I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again. And then you remember Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Those nails did not keep Jesus welded to a cross. I promise you that. 
Note, if you would, the continuation. Verse 42, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So they questioned the sonship of Jesus. They questioned the sovereignty of Jesus. And when I talk about the sovereignty of Jesus, I'm talking about the fact that he is overall. He reigns supreme. As Paul would say, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So, we've looked into the courtroom scene, the cruelty of the cross, and the cries from the cross. Matthew only records specifically one statement. There's a second inferred. Seven statements made by Jesus on the cross. I think about the book of John. You've got seven signs or miracles recorded by the apostle, seven I am statements, and then you have the seven statements of Jesus from the cross. In verse 45, the Bible says, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Imagine if you can, you're just outside the walls of Jerusalem and at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, Darkness covers the land. For three solid hours, there's darkness. And the Bible says in chapter 27, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In all candor and honesty, I'm not sure I can fully fathom the depth of what Jesus was saying on that occasion. Quotation taken from the Psalms, Psalm 22 specifically. Jesus was bearing the weight of sin. And you think about the vicarious suffering and death of Jesus. Paul said, Him who knew no sin, He became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Is it possible that Jesus, as the Son of God, that communion that had existed with the Father from time eternal, that relationship, fellowship, communion, the glory that they enjoyed with one another. And now here's the Son of God bearing the darkness of sin upon His head, forsaken by the Father. I mentioned a moment ago, a fellow by the name of Simon of Serene, bearing the cross of Jesus. And I would remind all of us that the Lord Jesus, when He fell beneath that cross, it was not His cross, was it? The Lord Jesus was bearing our cross. Peter said He bore our sins, listen to him, He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Jesus vicariously suffered, bled, and died for me and for you. And so on the cross, Jesus cries to the Father. Now, Matthew said in verse 50, when Jesus had cried out again with a loud voice, He yielded up His spirit. John said in chapter 19, verse 30, that Jesus cried out, It is finished. In chapter 17, in the shadow of the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father. And you remember Jesus in His prayer to the Father said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. What was that work? Redemption, wasn't it? 
Wasn't it Peter who said that Jesus is the one who redeemed us by His blood? He was foreordained before the world began. He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So here is Jesus saying, it is finished. His redemptive work consummated on Calvary. Three days later, He would rise from the dead. And Paul would say He would be declared the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness. I can only imagine standing at the foot of the cross and listening to Jesus as He spoke those final words. But here's something to think about. What was the cause of the cross? Why did Jesus go to the cross? I mentioned a moment ago the darkness that hovered the land for three hours. Sometimes we talk about the darkness of the, of the human family, the darkness of sin, and how sin has invaded the human family. And yet, at the cross, what do we have? Deliverance, don't we? When Jesus went to the cross, two things were accomplished. Well, really, redemption was accomplished. He redeemed us by His blood, and Paul said He made peace through the blood of His cross. You and I today can enjoy redemption through the blood of Christ. We can be reconciled to the Father. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. Matthew talks about the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. Go back and look at the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. In the temple area, there was the stranger of the gate. But here we have that veil being, that veil being torn down, both Jews and Gentiles having access to the Father, to salvation. God's eternal plan was to redeem both Jew and Gentile in that one body. So the darkness of sin. But then there was deliverance, was there not? Pentecost Day, Peter and the other apostles, they are preaching the gospel for the very first time in all of its fullness. And the Bible says that those people present on that occasion were cut to the heart. They were pricked, convicted by the message they heard. And they cried out and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Remember when Jesus was on the cross, one of the things that He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The very people that put Jesus to death have the opportunity to be saved, don't they? Pardon. God is willing to forgive any sin, all sin, if we're willing to meet the terms of condition, if we're willing to meet the terms of pardon. There are certain conditions that we must comply with. On Pentecost Day, those people believed Jesus. They believed in Jesus. Peter affirmed that beginning in verse 22 and following. They were instructed to repent and to be baptized for the remission, the forgiveness of their sins. When they did that, the Bible says, God then added them to the church. I mentioned a moment ago, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, where Peter said, Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Jesus was the just, the human family, the unjust. Peter said, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The cross says to all of us, God loves us immensely. Let me tell you, let me just close by saying this. When I go back and look at 
Calvary. As I see Jesus stretched out upon that cross, in my mind, what held Him on that cross was love for you and me. Had Jesus aborted the cross, where would we be? Without hope? Without God? The divine love of God, the love of Christ. You remember the Hebrew writer talked about who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus could look at the end result of the cross in light of what the cross would accomplish. He could go to the cross with joy for us because ultimately we could enjoy redemption. There's no reason for anybody to be lost. No reason for anybody to spend eternity separated from the Father. The golden text of the Bible still reads, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You know, Paul said, God who spared not His own Son, God gave His very best. The paradox of the cross. On the one hand, probably the most tragic day in the history of the human family. On the other hand, the greatest day in human history. Because when Jesus went to the cross, He died to save us from sin. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love